Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of what has been over the course of its 1,300 year history a monastery, an island fortress, and a convict prison. We are, of course, looking at the history of Spike Island in Cork on this, the 85th anniversary of when it was handed back to Ireland alongside the other treaty ports. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the history of Ireland's first public library, Marsh's Library in Dublin, and we discovered why it was founded and how it has evolved over the centuries. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Over the past 1,300 years, Spike Island has been host to a 7th century monastery, a 24-acre fortress, the largest convict depot in the world in Victorian times, and centuries of island homes. Since the handover in 1938 of the treaty ports, it has served as a prison, and there was a huge riot on the island in 1985, as well as a youth correctional facility and also as a military base. Today, it's a wonderful tourist attraction where you can explore the buildings and fortifications take a walking tour, enjoy the museum exhibitions and more and get a new insight into the good, the bad and the ugly of Irish history. And so to discuss the history of Spike Island and its place in Irish history, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dorota Gubbins is the creator of Spike Island, John Goulding is the assistant manager of Spike Island and Eric Curtis is a Spike Island volunteer who grew up on the island. Well, you're all very welcome. And John, I might begin with you with some of the more recent history because it's easy to think of Spike Island as as an old monastery dating back to 635 or as a Cromwellian prison or even as a Victorian prison. But of course, it was a prison up until much more recent times and there was a huge prison riot there in 1985 where they lost control of the island. So can you tell us about that riot? Yes, well the fortress Spike Island, uh, Fort Mitchell, it's uh, over 200 years old. It's mostly been used during those centuries for military purposes, uh, but also during that time it's been used as a form of a prison uh, on four different occasions and the most recent of those was as a prison for young offenders. Uh, This opened up in 1985. It was opened up because there was a large recession going on in the 80s as I'm sure lots of the listeners will remember. Um, this caused lots of uh, immigration, but also lots of antisocial behaviour. So the thought was that because of this rise in young offender crime, mostly with men in their early 20s, boys in their late teenage years, that a, a new prison for young offenders uh, was needed. Uh, the fort on Spike Island was chosen. It was only open actually a few months in 1985, when in August, um, at the end of August of 85, there was an attempted escape and a riot. Uh, During that period, there was approximately 120 prisoners on the island. Um, Two buildings were set on fire during the riot, a building called Block A and a building called Block B. Uh, Block A is still derelict to this day from the fires that were started. Block B has been restored a few years after the event. Um, So as well as having buildings on fire, the prisoners managed to climb out over walls to get outside the fort. They went down to the shoreline looking for boats to escape with uh, when there was none to be found. And the authorities began to arrive on the island to try and quell the riot. Prisoners started scattering. The majority eventually retreated back up to the fort. They forced their way back in and they started a protest on top of the tallest roof in the fort, which is a building called Mitchell Hall. And that protest lasted for around 12 to 14 hours until eventually, as the nighttime was falling of the next evening, I think the majority of prisoners realised by then they weren't going to escape. Or, um, you know, they were just going to be up there because they were completely surrounded. So they came down. But the real consequences of the riot was the damage to Block A, which is such a shame because it's one of the two oldest buildings in the fort. But by itself, it's definitely uh, the most historically relevant building in the fort, in my opinion. It's connected to every single bit of Spike's history. Uh, But also, unfortunately, this was the end of the social history, you could say, of the island. 
because the last families who were living on the island who were trying to coexist with the prison, uh, they weren't physically harmed by the prisoners the night of the riot, but they were asked to leave the island um, after this. And that's the last time anybody's lived here since 1985. The modern prison, it stayed open for 19 more years until 2004. 19 years ago was when it finished. And it did have some very high profile prisoners because in 1988, Martin Cattle, the infamous general, uh, he was sent to, to Spike Island for four months for breaching the peace. And they deliberately wanted him away from the Dublin prisons. Yes, that's true. Yeah. During its 19 year modern prison history, over 80% of the prisoners were aged between 16 and 21 years old. So mostly young lads, you could say. But there was exceptions made for older prisoners, a lot of times for safety concerns. And as you just said there, yes, the most notorious of these would be Martin Cahill, um, the general who was uh, played by Brendan Gleeson in that very good film, The General. He was down here for four months in 1988 after his uh, lawyer. Uh, made the case that he was just too high profile to be sent to one of the bigger prisons, not even just the Dublin ones, but even you could say Port Leash, Limerick, Cork. There would be a lot of people out to get him, um, it was thought. So it was agreed that he could come down to Spike Island with the young offenders where it would thought there would be less of a risk. Uh, we do know that he kind of kept his head down on the island. He didn't really um, cause as much trouble as you might have expected, but he just kept his head down and he wasn't thought to be pretty paranoid on the island, despite the fact that it was full of young offenders. So he kind of, whoever he was friendly with, he would always try and get them to go into buildings before him to make sure the coast was clear and stuff like that. But yeah, he did his four months and we actually do a video footage we got from RTE of him arriving uh, over in Cove and getting the boat over to Spike Island. So we have that actually on display inside the fort as well on a loop. So people, the visitors these days can have a look at that. And it was in 2004 then that it closed forever then as a as a prison or as a, a place for young offenders. Yes, 2004. I think it was just deemed very, like, you know, costly to keep a prison on an island. Uh, like, like there's, there are six islands in Cork Harbour. Uh, this is the only, in the lower Cork Harbour, this is the only one where there's no bridge access. Um, so everything had to be shipped over, which was goods, people working, visitors, everything really. So it became very expensive to keep it open because of the shipping costs a, a lot of ways. So I thought, I think the big thought was either build a bridge or close it down. And uh, the decision was made to close it down. So Dorota, let's talk about the treaty ports, because I think it would be a very good pub quiz question to ask teams to name uh, the three treaty ports. And uh, and of course, Spike Island is one of them uh, off Cove. So you have uh, uh, Bearhaven, you have Loch Swilly. And of course, this year is the 85th anniversary of when they were handed back to Ireland. And that was a hugely significant moment in Irish history. And it's an important anniversary. You are completely right, Patrick. Uh, this week actually marks the 85th anniversary of the handover of the treaty ports from British to Irish control. Fort Westmoreland, as you've mentioned, uh, at Spike Island, was one of the forts within Cork Harbour which had been retained by Britain under the 1921 Ang- Anglo-Irish Treaty. In the middle of January 1938, the government of Ireland and the UK agreed to initiate formal talks centred on four areas of contention partition, finance, trade and defence. And then the agreement was reached on the 25th of April 1938 and signed in London. And on the defence side, the UK government agreed to transfer the coast defence stations occupied by the British forces to Ireland. Once all the details of the handover were decided in the series of meetings held from May 1938 onwards, it was eventually confirmed that the date of the evacuation of coast should be July 11th, 1938. And of course, Dorota, this was a hugely significant moment then for Ireland because uh, it allowed Ireland to remain neutral, to remain out of the Second World War. It was a huge blow for the United Kingdom then uh, when the Second World War broke out. But can you tell us then what happened when uh, Ireland took over the base then? What happened next? Okay, the formal possession of the fort was taken by then Major Patrick Maher, who was officer commanding of the, and director of artillery on behalf of the Irish government. I would like to actually mention that Patrick Maher spent a few months living with his family at Spike Island. It's very important to know that during this time he was involved in negotiating the handover of the remaining treaty ports. And just recently, the family of Patrick Maher shared some very important letters and documents with us and hopefully we will be able to add this, these letters to our collection. 
sun. So Eric, can we talk then maybe about your experiences with the islands? What are your first memories of the islands and how did you end up on Spike Island? I was very young when I came to the island because I was born in 1948 and we arrived on the island in 1949. My earliest memory is as a child, obviously, playing on the island. The island was uh, what you would describe as a very safe and free place for children because other than the sea, um, there were no other dangers on the island. Um, So we obviously either learned to swim or stayed away from the water. But other than that, every day we met and we played football and we did all the other things that kids do. It was also a place where the, the social structure was such that you never closed the door. You could walk into people's houses. It was quite free to do that. And generally, while people never had a lot, if you did go to somebody's house and it was mealtime, you were always added to the group and you got something to eat. And that was standard for all the families. Also, the families at that time were much bigger than now. Generally, they were at eight, seven, eight kids. Uh, many of them were 12. We had some at 15. And there was one family who had 20 children. So it was quite a busy place. And your father, he was a military policeman. He then became the sergeant in charge of that area. Yeah, he was um, a military policeman, which always spelled great danger for me because he was always making sure that whoever else got into trouble, we didn't. He was transferred then to Holbolen, where he was in charge of the military police detachment in Holbolen and Spike. So he would what be probably similar to the, 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 usual, the, the Garda sergeant um, in, in, in the sense of the island. Very good. Now, maybe we'll go back in time to the to the original settlement on the island. And John, can you talk to us about that? Because it's believed that the monastery was built on the island, I think the year was 635 AD. Yeah, so obviously history, going back that far, um, there's not a load of records of it really. Uh, I think there's a, a few small writings of it in different, uh, different books and in different areas. But yeah, it's believed that there was a monastery on the north side of the island, set up in the, as you said, in the uh, 16th century and perhaps lasted for about 100 years. Uh, It's believed that it was destroyed eventually by the Vikings. Uh, Again, there's no actual evidence of this, but it's just when Cork City was being founded by the Vikings, they would have had to have sailed past Spike Island into the entrance to the harbour, past Spike, up to where Cork City is right now. So it's believed, knowing the Vikings and, um, you know, kind of their um, modus operandi, most likely they would have seen a small monastery on a small island and destroyed it. Um, but it's believed that St. Makuda would have um, set up this monastery um, in the 6th century and that it would have been on the north side of the island just because the south side faces the entrance to the harbour. So just for a bit of added protection, it would have been on the opposite side. Um, and that's where we have a lot of the buildings on the island to this day as well and the, uh, the pier, the pontoon, all on the north side of the island. So there's no actual physical evidence of it we do believe it would have been um, pretty much where we have the road leading up to the fort now on the north side of the island. That was the first ever building on the island, of course. And that the monks would have farmed the land, they would have fished the waters, but that they were also involved in in producing important ecclesiastical documents. And that there's some evidence from uh, European scholars that there was very important work being done by the monks on, on Spike Islands as well. Yes, of course, yes. Um, yeah, like like in a lot of monasteries, yeah, they were... They were living off the land, of course, especially being on an island. Um, they would have been very much um, look, just looked after themselves. But uh, yeah, I know that it's believed as well that they were doing important writing as well. And as we all know back then, the the monks living in Ireland would have been probably some of the most important um, writers in Europe at the time as well and just conserving history and making documents and stuff like that as well. So yeah, I know there, um, there is records over in Europe of the monks on Spike Island um, being very, very much involved in that lineage as well. And then is the next phase of its history, the next significant phase, the Cromwellian conquest period uh, from 1649 to 1653 when it became a Cromwellian prison? Yes, it's believed so, yes. So back in that period, it, it's not believed that Oliver Cromwell ever came down he, like, as far as Spike Island or, and really. But it is believed that he set up a wooden temporary kind of prison 
on the island. Um, as we all know, he he killed a lot of people in Ireland, uh, all, all over all over the island. But he was also sending Irish people over to the to the New World, over in the Caribbean, um, as indentured servants. So it, it is believed that because of the size of Cork Harbour, the the ease at which you can get a large ship in, fill it up with some of those people and uh, take them off. That um, That's why he built the wooden prison on Spike Island. Um, obviously, this was only a temporary structure, really. Um, but it is believed that th- thousands of men were sent to the island um, to be transported off to the um, Americas as, as they were known at the time. So a very important staging post then for those who were being transported that Spike Islands would have been the last the last time they would have set foot on our soil before they were sent away. Oh, 100% yes. And that was repeated again in the 19th century for the first um, of the prison uses of the current fort we have. But yeah, I know like, when you think about it really, Cork Harbour in general, because Cove, like you've had hundreds of thousands of people voluntarily leave Ireland for, uh, with immigration throughout the centuries and that would have been the last bit of Irish soil they ever touched but just across the water where we are on Spike Island it would have been similar but it just would have been uh, not voluntary would have been involuntary immigration for yeah tens of thousands of um, uh, people over the years this would have been the last bit of Irish soil they touched and once they headed out uh, outside of Cork Harbour it'd be the last time they would have seen um, any Irish land at all. And then in the 18th century, of course, we have the American War of Independence uh, broke out in 1775. Three years later, in 1778, France entered the war on the side of the American colonists. And that created a huge fear then in Britain that France would would send over a fleet and an army, uh, whether to Britain or to Ireland. And we see the building of a, of a fortification on Spike Island in 1779. Yes. So, yeah, it was because of those two wars that were happening, really, the American War of Independence and the Napoleonic Wars that Britain had been having with France, that there was a real fear, I suppose, of invasion, but also a need for the British to have a safe harbour for lots of their ships. Um, Because I suppose on the southwest of England, places like Cornwall, Devon, or even parts of Wales, somewhere in Ireland is much closer to the entrance to the Atlantic part of the, the Atlantic entrance to Western Europe, really. So really the two factors for building the fort on Spike Island was the fact that our location meant that if you had a large, strong base here, you could really control access to the entrance to Western Europe, really, uh, in a much quicker way than you could from parts of England or Wales. But also the fact that Cork Harbour is one of the largest naturally deep and large harbours in the world, that the British were actually able to keep between four and 500 vessels just between Spike Island and the town of Cove. And as long as they had fortresses protecting the entrance to the harbour, they felt that it would be impenetrable, really. So at, actually, at the same time, they started building three forts at the entrance to the harbour, uh, one here on Spike Island, one on the western side of the entrance at Crosshaven, and one at the eastern side of the entrance at Whitegate. And, and these became the three sister forts uh, protecting the entrance to the harbour. And really, it was never invaded once those forts were built. And really, until the advent of airplanes, it was nearly impossible to attack. Because as well as the forts here at the entrance to the harbour, you also had Martello Towers dotted around the coastline to to propel any attack from the land side also. So really it was um, a very very great engineering plan and a very great strategically defensive um, area as well. But the fort here on Spike Island was really the linchpin of it all. And really if you wanted to place an island in Cork Harbour to be able to defend the harbour, you couldn't place it any better than where Spike Island is right now because it's close enough to the entrance to the harbour that you can have guns pointed at the entrance to the harbour to safely protect it but also far back enough as well that um, the other forts uh, really were able to have a bit of a trifecta of just kind of um, covering all different areas around the entrance to the harbour which was um, yeah I suppose very fortunate with uh, topography but also um, they took advantage of it as well in a great way. And that hugely innovative star-shaped design, because I was reading about that only recently, how uh, once uh, cannons ended up, you know, effectively destroying, reducing the effectiveness of castles as fortifications, these these star-shaped structures were designed because it allowed you to attack from from different sides and have overlapping arcs of fire and and increase the the the, the area that you could could hit people and and the twenty-four acre. Uh, uh, fort on the island was part of that star-shaped design. Yes, 100% you're correct there. Um, yeah, so the star-shaped design, um, it was, you, you'll actually find it all over the world, especially 
in parts that are um, former parts of the British Empire. So you'll see it in Ireland, England, um, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa. But it was actually the Italians were the first ones to come up with the star-shaped design. And it did solve the problem of, um, I suppose, blind spots around your fort and also being able to have a wide uh, a wide area to protect as well. Because just having, like, let's say in Spike Island, and use that as an example, it's a six-pronged uh, star-shaped fort. The kind of pointy parts of the star, you would say, are called bastions. And there's six bastions here in this fort. So really, the way it's um, designed is that if you have guns on each bastion, then you've got literally, you're protecting every, every side of your fort, really. And the star-shaped design as well just eliminates any attack on the kind of ground side as well. Because in the older style forts, which were more circular or oval-shaped, um, like, you know, there was blind spots. There was areas where if an enemy was able to get past your guns, they could kind of cling to the wall and not be able to be attacked unless there was some sort of strategic kind of hole um, above where stuff could be poured out. But really the star-shaped design meant that there was no area around your fort where kind of uh, small kind of flanking galleries wouldn't be able to, I suppose, defend, defend themselves by just having an excellent defensive position against every single person who's trying to come towards the fort. So our fort now, um, outside the star-shaped fort, is a moat. It's a dry moat, so obviously never filled with water. And in front of our next thin is a much higher wall around the moat. So really, to attack the fort, you would have to get past the guns pointing at the entrance to the harbour. You'd have to get onto the island, uh, get over the first high wall, and then get past the riflemen inside in the flanking galleries uh, who had a much uh, a very good defensive position, and you were just out in the open, really. So really, it was a brilliant design, but a star-shaped design, really, as well. Um, was kind of, you know, just an extra uh, unbelievable layer of defence on top of it. And there is another couple of examples of star-shaped forts here in Cork as well. So you have Elizabeth Fort up in Cork City and Charles Fort in Kinsale as well. So really, once the star-shaped design was invented, really, it, it, it became widespread because of just how um, the, the defensive capabilities it had. And Dorota, the fort, it was completed in 1850 and was originally named uh, Fort Westmoreland, but it was renamed Fort Mitchell after uh, Ireland reclaimed it or got it back in 1938 and uh, uh, the decision to name it after John Mitchell who was, of course, uh, a prisoner there, held there in 1848. And John had mentioned earlier about how there is a, a Mitchell Hall, there is a Fort Mitchell. I wonder, has there been any discussion in recent times about possibly renaming uh, uh, Fort Mitchell, given that John Mitchell himself now is a very controversial figure, given his support for slavery in the United States and uh, various racist statements that he that he, that, that he put down in writing and his, his ambition to uh, have a plantation with 300 slaves and so on that uh, there has been a lot of discussion about whether uh, places named in honour of John Mitchell should be renamed. Well, yes. Yes, there are talks about renaming uh, John Mitchell Ford at Spike Island. However, nothing has been confirmed yet. And in my opinion, if I can say, I think Ford Westmoreland sounds very good, but it's really not up to me. John, would you have any, any strong views one way or the other? Yeah, I suppose, um, especially in the last few years now, like, you know, uh, we see this in places in America as well, um, where places are mooted to be renamed and stuff like that. Um, yeah, obviously, John Mitchell, who the fort is named after, has a very complicated past. Um, he Some of his statements were, were really abhorrent, really. And like, you know, um, we we obviously don't condone them or support any of those kind of statements at all. Uh, but the reason he the fort was named after him in the first place is because he did play a very important role in Irish history and in Irish freedom. You know, he was one of the young Irelanders. Um, he was actually one of the only people in the, in the 19th century writing Irish history from an Irish perspective. Uh, the majority of it was being written from a British perspective, which obviously uh, maybe had a different lens over it. He was writing it for from an Irish perspective, and it said lots of the people involved in the 1916 Easter Rising were actually inspired to get involved by his writings. So obviously he, he's, he's important from that sense, but in another way, um, you know, he had, he had some views that um like e- even by the standard of the, of those days um would have been would have looked you know very out of place and obviously in in modern times don't look, look even worse again so um not people have talked about having the fort renamed um again same as Trota. i'm not 100 sure is it my my place or my decision at all but um he like I, 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 we can confirm right that he does have a complicated past in terms that he's 
important in Irish history and you could say Irish freedom as well. Um, very much so, but obviously had some very controversial views as well. And of course, you know, uh, calling it re- returning to the original name of, of Fort Westmoreland is, is, is equally problematic because Westmoreland was a huge defender of slavery himself. So you probably would have to go for a completely different name if you were to break that link. Yes. Well, yeah. So the original three um, forts in the harbour were all named after people in the British Armed Services. So you had Fort Westmoreland, Fort Carlisle and uh, Fort Camden. Uh, they were all renamed. So one, or one became Fort Mitchell, um, the Fort Oven Cross Haven became Fort um, Maher or Fort Maher after Thomas Maher. And the fort over in Whitegate became Fort Davis. Uh, that one is actually still in use by the Irish Army uh, to this day. Fort Camden, Fort Maher, Oven Cross Haven um, is, is also open to the public um, these days as well for tours. But uh, yeah, so if they were if, if it were to be renamed again perhaps a new name or something like that would perhaps be the way to go I, I, I can't see it going back to forwards more than really to be honest and of course the important thing is that there should still be uh, memorials and and parts of the exhibition recognising that John Mitchell was a prisoner there that he did have an important connection with Spike Island and it's about making sure this is properly contextualised and memorialised not just uh, uh, deleting it completely uh, I think it's important to embrace the past as well, and uh, even if John Mitchell's figure is very controversial, nowadays he spent four days at Spike Island. He wrote his J journal while being imprisoned at Spike Island. Absolutely, and I think that's an important part of the story and the history of Spike Island that needs to be remembered. You can't just uh, delete that history uh, from it. It's possible it could be renamed and that's a decision that can be taken, but uh, the fact that Mitchell was a prisoner there and had an important connection with the island, that does need to be memorialised and remembered. Correct. Well, we are discussing the history of Spike Island. It covers 1,300 years of Irish history. And when we take a quick break now, when we come back, we'll be talking about its experiences during the famine when it was a prison once again. And we'll talk about its use in Victorian times. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we explore the history of Spike Island. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel, Dorota Gobbins, the creator of Spike Island, John Golding, assistant manager of Spike Island, and Eric Curtis, a Spike Island volunteer who grew up on the island. John, can you talk us through what happened then uh, on Spike Island during the famine? Because during the worst of these years, it became or it was used as a as a as a prison again. Yeah. So the the fort had been been here now for around over fifty years. Uh, it took actually that time to finish completing the fort because when Britain was at a time of war, there was being money sent over here for their defences. When that war was finished, the money kind of dried up a small bit. So it did take a few decades to completely finish and look the way, similar to the way that it does right now. Then in the late 1840s, um, the British made the decision to turn it into a, a form of a prison um, where people were sent here for one or two years onto the island of hard labour. Um, that labour could have been done on Spike Island, on the neighbouring island of Hall Bolin, or other parts of the harbour. They could be sent here from any part of Ireland, uh, any county at all. But we even had, there was even some, there was records of prisoners sent over here from parts of England, Scotland or Wales as well during that period. Uh, the hard labour they got them to complete on Spike Island included finishing off some of the buildings of the fort which weren't completed, some of the walls of the fort which weren't completed. Uh, actually, there's lots of steep and flat slopes around the island. This was an extra layer of defence as well, just making it hard to attack and give you an extra higher level of defence. So some of these were also completed by the prisoners, so they would have been involved in you know, moving a large amount of earth um, from the shoreline, let, let's say, up towards the fort as well. So very hard, kind of back-breaking, tiring work. And the idea behind this was, as well as getting work done, you know, free labour, uh, they also wanted to tire them out so much that once they were put to bed at night, all they could do was you know, pretty much pass out. Um, they wouldn't be have any energy left to be, like, you know, planning escapes or stuff like that. Um, but after a couple of years of hard labour, their time wasn't finished yet. Uh, that's the reason why Spike Island as well, as well as a strategic area, that the British wanted work done. Um, it was also easily able to get ships into the harbour, fill them up with these prisoners and send them off to parts of the Caribbean or more often to parts of Australia or sent there for a further seven or 14 more years of hard labour until they were released over there. And um, so, and this was for lots of different crimes, like there could have been murderers sent down here to Spike Island. But again, this started in 1847. Um, so really, like for the first few years of it, 
lots of these people, I, I, I would say, in my opinion, were victims of the famine. And, you know, there was there was laws in place where you couldn't beg for food and you couldn't loiter. But suddenly lots of people obviously had no homes or food. So I suppose loitering or begging for food was one of the only options they had. So um, lots of those unfortunate people would have been sent to Spike Island as well and then sent off to parts of the Caribbean, places like Jamaica, Bermuda, Barbados, Montserrat, but then more often to Australia as well. Um, and this this was the first prison use of the fort and it lasted for approximately 35 years. And Dorota, what's brilliant about the work that you've done in, in showing the history and showcasing the history of the islands is the fact that you, you've shown how brutal the conditions were uh, for those prisoners and the fact that, you know, possibly up to a thousand died in that 36-year history because it really was quite cruel and and, and brutal and a quite miserable existence uh, for those prisoners. Correct. Very dark history of Spag Island. One actually of the youngest convicts we know of was David Doran, and he was only 12 years old boy when he was sentenced to Spag Island in Dongarvan, Kanta Waterford. He was just a small boy, just four foot three, with brown hair and grey eyes, and he was sentenced to 10 years transportation, but sadly he died in hospital on the island. According to the prison letter, he could neither read or write, but he learned how to do it later in prison school. And I was so surprised to learn that, according to the files, he was not sentenced before. However, he was already described as a practice burglar at the age of 12. So they were already kind of discarding some people because uh, as their lives as not being worth rehabilitation or not being worth saving that uh, they were just to be sent away for hard labour and that was to be the end of them. Unfortunately so. It looked like it. approximately 1,200 convicts died on the island. However, only 11 headstones are still present in Spike Island Cemetery. Uh, actually, Dr. Barra O'Donovan, who had directed the archaeological excavations inside the fort and the cemetery during the past years, uncovered several well-preserved artifacts, such as rosary beads, chests and domino pieces and others, also human remains and fragments of convicts' coffins and nails. And there was also a, a terrible punishment block where prisoners would be chained to the wall by their neck and legs for, for almost the entire day. It really seems that uh, any prisoner who was unfortunate enough to end up there really had things made even worse for them. Yes, that's true. So the punishment block, this, this was an area, obviously people were sent for punishment. Um, there was punishment cells on the island before this, but they actually weren't deemed severe enough, um, I suppose, as a deterrent. So this building was built in 1858, when that's when it started, and it was completed in 1860, and it was in use then for the next 20-odd years. And yeah, this building, uh, unlike the other parts of the the prison, um, where you would be let out in the morning and you would have work and jobs to do and stuff like that, you were actually isolated in this building for 23 and a half hours each day, and you were chained to the wall and chained to the floor in a very dark, damp uh, wet room, uh, more than likely with rats and stuff like that around. Like legally in the British prison system back in those days, no matter what building you were being kept in, in any British prison, you had to be let outside for uh, 30 minutes each day. Uh, so that's the minimum um, and maximum they allowed in this building. Um, but even in this building, just um, I suppose to I suppose add to the sense of isolation, they made them wear a black hood over their head once during their 30 minutes outside. So still they had no contact even through sight of any other prisoners. So really the isolation was um, was immense. Um, this building it was a lot of times used for days or weeks, let's say, sometimes months. But unfortunately, it was sometimes used for years. And uh, this was obviously long-term punishment. And we do know a story in that um, building of a man from County Clare called Patrick Tierney, uh, who was kept in that building in the 1860s for the best part of seven years. Um, that was his punishment. He actually tried to escape the island twice. Both times he was caught on a boat almost in Cove. And the second time he actually had attacked someone on the shoreline of Spike and took their boat. That person was fairly well connected, like a high member of society, let's say, uh, just visiting the island. So really that's when the book was thrown at him. His sister in County Clare, Patrick Tierney, actually found out where he was being kept because he, he actually was captured under an alias. So they didn't know exactly where he was. But she actually tracked him down. She sent someone down to see how he is. And when they reported back the conditions he would be kept in, she even in 1860, she, she said this was unacceptable. So she petitioned for his release. And actually two other men, all three of them were Irish Republicans, including Tierney, who had been kept in there long term. They were released a year and a half later. 
they were forced to immigrate out of the country as part of their release. And that man, Tierney, did pass away a year later uh, in New York City at the age of only 41. So really, that'll just tell you what being kept in that building long term was like for your body and mind. But even on a short term basis, it would have uh, would have lived up to its name as the punishment block. Um, definitely. And John, there was a surgeon on the island, but it certainly seems that the first person who had that job was was drunk on 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 duty. Seems to have taken drugs as well, and definitely seems to have maybe contributed to the the huge mortality rate. Um, yes, perhaps yes. Um, so there is records of that. All right. Um, there there was one or two cases of um, people in the British prison system who perhaps were not um, you know doing their duty to the highest level, would be sent to Spike Island, um, whether from other parts of Ireland or parts of, um, let's say, UK and stuff like that. So it was seen as a place, really, that you might end up if you weren't doing your job too well in other places. And there is one or two records of that happening, including, yeah, the surgeon. Like in the first four years, as Dorot had mentioned, the first four, four and a half years um, of this prison, um, there was around 1,200 people died on the island. Uh, That's one every two days for over those four years. Um, which is really high. It's a death rate of around 12%, really, which is really, really high. Um, it was because of the, I suppose you could say, the um, the medical the medical system that was in place on Spike at the time, but it was also in part due to the just overcrowded and unsanitary conditions they were being kept in. Um, as we all know, there was lots of infectious diseases back then and obviously being kept in so very high numbers in a very uh, tight space would just lead these diseases to go um, spread rampantly around the island, which is what happened for many years. They did then figure this out and, you know, started having less numbers on the island and less numbers in one place. But actually, at the the start of the 1850s, this was the largest prison in the whole of the British Empire by population. Um, And it is thought that on any one day in those years, there could be over 2,300 prisoners just inside the fort walls on any one day, which again was completely, completely overcrowded. And that would have made it the largest prison probably in the world. Yes, it, it is believed so, yeah. I say the largest prison in the British Empire, but yeah, no, and there's parts of the world, I suppose, that don't have complete records um, for the 1850s. But um, from what we believe, yeah, it, it might well have been the largest prison in the world back then, but certainly the largest in the British Empire at that time. Dorota, it closed as a Victorian prison in 1883. So that means that this year also marks the 140th anniversary of that crucial event. That's true. This year, 2023, marks the 140th anniversary of the closing down of the prison. And we tried to commemorate this event with uh, with an art exhibition. We collaborated with a Cork-based artist, uh, Sinead Barrett, which resulted in the current uh, exhibition in the Punishment Block, uh, where Sinead reflects on the historical context of isolation and explores the lives of convicts in the Victorian era when Spagaland was used as a convict depot and prison. And it's a way of, I suppose, remembering those who, who perished on the island. It's remembering those who suffered as prisoners and it's making sure that their story is remembered as well. Many of the prisoners were subject to solitary confinement and it's estimated that almost 1,200 convicts died on the island. We only know of 11 headstones being still present in Spike Island Cemetery. So this is our way of remembering those who died here on the island in the 19th century. John, it is a little bit confusing, isn't it? It kind of shows a, a, a lack of interest on the part of the, the British government and the British administration that they were prepared to, to have Spike Island as both a, a military fort and as a dumping ground for these prisoners, that it wanted it to be almost everything, that it, if it really was concerned about it as a, as a great uh, fortification, they wouldn't have been also turning it into a prison. Yes, very true. That does tie into, I suppose, where where the fears of the British government were at the time. Like um, when the fort was first conceived and built for the first few decades, the fears were invasion, fears were wars. Um, You could say perhaps by the 1840s, they had maybe less of a fear of that. And I suppose one of the fears they had then was the growing Irish population. You know, back then, the population of Ireland was 8 million, um, which was a third of the two islands combined. And also then I suppose when the famine broke out and there was new laws brought in, which outlawed, you know, you could say homelessness, but it was, I suppose, loitering and uh, begging, um, which homelessness would have tied into in a way that, you know, there was just so many people being arrested that they felt like they needed a place to send these people, which they didn't have already in their prison system. And also again, like Spike Island being in Cork Harbour, 
and places like in the Caribbean, which were under British control, and Australia, which of course was under British control back then. They they had a need for, you know, kind of indentured servants, you could say, kind of just people being sent out for um, labour for a period of seven or 14 years and then to be released. So I suppose it, it was just a need at the time of uh, the growing British Empire and also just the Irish famine, which um, led to lots of people being arrested, like we would say these days, very much a lot of them unfairly, but... Um, most of them unfairly, but um, the being sent to Spike Island really, I suppose, was kind of two birds in one stone. You know, they were a place to send Irish prisoners and also a place to get ships in, uh, help um, get work over to Australia and the Caribbean. So, yeah, you could say it was kind of that uh, they were trying to be everything all at once. I think it's a bit similar to Alcatraz over in San Francisco. And that was also used as a military fortification first day ever. And then it was uh, converted into a prison. So um, I suppose history has repeated itself over there as well. And Eric, of course, you as the person who had spent so much of those formative childhood years on this Irish Alcatraz, uh, you probably weren't aware of this uh, long history as a boy, but when did you start learning about it? Because I know that as a volunteer now, you help maintain the the guns there. So as as time went on, you would have become aware of this history as a prison and as a, a military fortification. Yes, we we moved to Halboran at one stage because uh, that's where my father was based. Um, and at that time, I began to get interested in the history. Listening to the earlier discussion, I think sometimes we when we look at history, and I am pretty interested in history because I'm still involved here, uh, we must be very careful to put it into context. It's pretty easy to say that nowadays slavery is terrible and it shouldn't have been there. But at the time, that was a normal practice. Whether it was right or wrong is different. Well, well, it well, was part of history. It was part in of the it. same way you have the prison in spite. And I'm not trying to put, put it away, but the conditions were absolutely appalling here. I remember reading a, an inspector of prisons report uh, from the UK say, saying that it was the worst prison he had ever visited. But it was time at the time. But, 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 Eric, just, but Eric, just on the slavery question, although there were some people in at that period who would have had the same views as John Mitchell, there were also others like Daniel O'Connell who would have known Mitchell very well from their uh, campaigns for repeal in the 1840s, who was one of the greatest abolitionists of the, of the age and who saw slavery as a moral uh, and a social and a political evil. So it's not like that everyone in the 19th century thought that slavery was some acceptable practice that there were there were strong vocal uh, advocates in the 19th century who did think this was an evil and someone like John Mitchell instead decided to to side with those who who believed that uh, although the Irish had been treated uh, so badly by the British he was happy justifying a system that would uh, treat African Americans far far worse of course I'm not trying to propose that, that, that there was anything good about slavery, but I'm trying to put it into the context of, for instance, um, at the famine, and that was, I mean, appalling is the number of people who died. But at the same time, they never had a system to deal with uh, the social aspects of that. And, and the workhouse system came in, which in itself was absolutely terrible. But they were the history's response to it at that particular time. And in the same way here in Spike, whether it was right or wrong, and it definitely wasn't right, the, the response of the British to, to locking people up and chaining them to the walls, when you actually see it, you, you, just, you can't even comprehend how bad it was. It was still a, a social reaction to the time. Whether it's right or wrong is a whole different other thing. I mean, people being arrested and locked up for stealing a loaf of bread, it it doesn't make any sense. But I'm trying to say about the the history that it must be viewed in what was the norm at that time. And I accept they were abolitionists. There were also people who fought very hard for penal reform during the Edwardian and Elizabethan times. 
but it still needs to be put in that context. And in terms of then your involvement with the islands, you clearly have that great connection because you you know the history so well, you, you have that experience of what it was like living on it, you work as a volunteer. It's clearly something that uh, is important for you to tell that story, the good, the bad and the ugly of it over the centuries, uh, through the exhibitions, through the museum, uh, through this uh, way that we remember what happened. Oh yes, I think it's very important to tell those stories because fight itself it is a huge, important, historical place in terms of its part in the British Empire as a defence of well, what they used as a defence of the British Empire, it's part as as a suppression of Irish people during the, the famine and, and the, the, the later period. And also then as a very important um, part with the handover, whereby the, the land up to then was British. I mean, there was... The island was the corner of Britain until 1938. And I think it's very important that people understand the importance of that handover as the road had described, because historically, it's it's a huge part in in, um, Irish history and modern Irish history. Absolutely, because if those uh, treaty ports hadn't been handed over at that time, you know, really Irish, Irish independence wouldn't have... Been real, you know, in a, in a real sense, it wouldn't have been achieved because we would have been dragged into the Second World War, uh, whether we wanted to or not, and we wouldn't have been able to pursue an independent foreign policy in the years ahead, and uh, and so uh, our hands would have been tied behind our back for all that period. So this eighty fifth anniversary is a significant one. Well, we are tonight talking about the history of Spike Island on this the eighty fifth anniversary of its handing back to Ireland, and we're going to explore what's going on in the museum what you can find when you visit spike island right after this break well welcome back to talking history as we explore the history of spike island i'm delighted to be joined by our panel of experts dorota gubbins the creator of spike island john goulding the assistant manager of spike island and eric curtis a spike island volunteer who grew up on the island dorota can you tell us if a tourist a visitor someone interested in the history of ireland the history of the island visited spike island this summer or in the months ahead what will they find I'm pretty sure that everyone will find something very, very interesting. Uh, The U.S. exhibition entitled The Handover of Spike Island uh, features never-before-seen artifacts from Spike Island collection that have been recently donated to the museum by several people. One of uh, very interesting artifacts is the one already mentioned by Eric, is the list of the officers and enlisted men who arrived at Spike Island on 11th of July. The other very, very interesting uh, artifact is actually the flag, which is believed to be the actual tricolor flown on the occasion of the 1938 handover, which is on display in Mitchell Hall. And John, is it exciting uh, welcoming guests to the island and to uh, having them share in this incredible history going back all those all those years? Yes, of course. Yeah, that's why we were so delighted that um, Spike Island was opened up to the public um, just a few short years ago, um, because really it's got so many connections to like you know centuries of Irish history. Um, it's it's in Cork Harbour, which is an amazing place to visit. And it's so nice to welcome, like, now we've started welcoming people here for their second, third, fourth visit, but we still get so many people coming here for the first time, whether they're from Ireland or Europe or around the world, really. So it's just great to show off um, this this part of Ireland. And people love getting the boat over from Cove over to Spike Island. They get a guided tour, um, an, an optional free guided tour once they arrive on the island, which will take them all the way up to the fort. And then they've got a few hours to explore the buildings in the fort, the walking trails around the island. Uh, really, there's like people say to us when they come over, they thought they would, would have too much time on the island. And when they're leaving, they actually wish they had a small bit more time to explore. So it's definitely a place we're getting multiple visitors. And yeah, we're really proud to show off the island itself and every, all the work that has been done by the, by the volunteers, by the maintenance, by the staff, by all the workers over the years. We really show off all their efforts um, to local people, international and, and international people. You know, once you get up to the fort, you'll see history connected to the, the famine uh, the famine era. You'll see a war of independence in Torment Camp. 
um, and military prison, which was uh, here in the early 1920s, of course, in the War of Independence. You'll see bits about the Irish Army, the Irish Naval Service, the modern prison, really so many strands of history. So that's why we've got great information on the website, just to give people a, a bit of an idea of what they can find over here. And also the amazing guided tour they'll get from the pier as well, from one of our great tour guides. Because, of course, John, that was that was an element that we weren't able to cover, its role during the War of Independence, but then also its role after independence when uh, it was, a, 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 once Ireland had, had it back again, it was used as a military base for a time. Oh, it, it was, yes. It was used as a military prison in the field and internment camp for around 12 hundred Irish Republicans for the last nine months of that war. Uh, the majority of those from Munster, but parts of Kilkenny, Wexford, other areas too. Um, but yeah, no, after independence, uh, it was in use by the Irish Army from 1938 to 1979. And uh, during that time, it was uh, it was a home for their families, uh, the, as, as Eric was mentioning, of course, and um, being, being one of those people involved, uh, but also as a training facility. It was a military prison for a few years in the 70s and 80s. And also it was a place where uh, quarantine zone for animals for a small bit too, uh, from the 60s to the 90s. Um, But the Naval Service took over control in 79, and they had it for the last six years until 1985. Uh, It was um, handed over to the prison service. I think what's incredible about Spike Island and its history is that you can visit it and find out all these different dimensions of Irish history. There's an Irish foreign policy story in terms of the handover in 1938. There's a whole prison history and the real trauma and suffering that was experienced there over these many different incarnations. There's the story of it as a fortress, as a military base, as a monastery going back to the 7th century, that you're not just getting one story on Spike Island, you're you're actually getting multiple stories. Yeah, sure. You certainly would get plenty of entertainment by visiting the island. And as you said, the various phases of activities on the island uh, are fascinating for those who love any part of history. Okay, Dorosha, I'll leave the final word to you. Um, Spike Island, it is a a, a powerful way of exploring uh, the very difficult and different parts of Irish history over the centuries. Correct. And it was one of our first tasks, actually, to understand Spike Island as a heritage site and to understand the several historic layers. They make up the character of this island, from what is believed an early Christian 7th century monastic site to the early 19th century star-shaped fort. So yes, everyone everyone with interest in history will definitely find something to explore at Spag Island. Okay, well that's a wonderful note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Dorota Gubbins, the creator of Spike Island, John Goulding, assistant manager of Spike Island, and Eric Curtis, a Spike Island volunteer who grew up on the island. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.